Uh, it's good to be with you. Good morning, Skyline. My name is Mike. I'm one of the speakers here at Skyline, along with Pastor Chris and Derek. Uh, and so uh, it's 2023, and we began this year um, starting off, we want to start off with a reset by putting first things first. And so coincident with that, we've been marching our way through the books of the Old Testament, <clears throat> conducting kind of a an airplane view tour of the Old Testament. And so in the first three weeks, Pastor Chris marched us through the first five books, uh, which are called the books of the law. And we saw that after creation, uh, man uh, fell from grace into sin. And ever since that time, God has been dealing uh, with people through covenants. He made uh, different covenants with different people. We saw the first one he made was with Adam, and then after that, he made a covenant with Noah. Uh, after that, he made a covenant with Abraham and his sons. And then finally, uh, he made a covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel. <clears throat> now, some of these covenants were one-way covenants where God would say, this is my promise to you, Abraham, uh, full stop, period. Uh, it was all about what God was going to do. And none of that promise depended on Abraham. But he also made two-way covenants, um, notably the one with um, Moses and the children of Israel. <clears throat> and he gave them the law, and that law became the covenant. So basically God said, if you keep this law, you will be blessed. But if you stray from it, you will bring curses upon yourself. <clears throat> and we... From those first three works, uh, weeks, we, we gleaned a number of principles. Um, among them is, I answer to God. That's foundational. We have to understand that we don't answer to ourselves. We don't answer really to any other authority other than God. <clears throat> and in order to reset our worship, we have to recognize that we can have no other gods besides Him. No other idols can take that place in our life if we are going to properly reset our worship. And we also talked about base of operations. Remember from, from week three, um, <clears throat> everybody has a base of operations. It's where we go to make our decisions. And we said that we need to have God's presence as our base of operations. How do we get God's presence? Well, we meet with him daily in his word. We pray. Uh, we, we come to church on a regular basis. We meet with the people of God. And then we, we minister in his name. So last week, Derek uh, introduced us to the next section, which is the books of history. And in that, we saw Israel came into the promised land. Then they had to fight to maintain it. They installed a bunch of kings uh, over them to reign over them. But ultimately, they were carried away into captivity. Why? Because they walked away from the covenant. They, they, they left God's covenant. <clears throat> they were in captivity. But even in captivity, God was working on their behalf to preserve them, to um, restore them, and ultimately to bring revival. And so last week, Derek shared with us that revival starts with being willing to leave the familiar in order to uh, experience God's call back to himself. <clears throat> and 
And that brings us to today and the books of poetry. Now, some of us like the law and history and logic and math. We call that left-brain dominant. But there's others of us who are more artistic and expressive and creative, and we call that right-brain dominant. Well, for all of you right-brain dominant people out there who have been slogging along with us the last four weeks through the law and through the history, this one's for you. And by way of introduction uh, into these books, I want to begin with uh, a personal story. So it was back <clears throat> in 2017. Uh, I was on a business trip, and the business of the day had concluded, and I was back <clears throat> at my hotel room. I was um, channel chasing through the different cable stations. I came across a movie that I had not seen, and it intrigued me. Now, the name of this movie was About Time, and it starred Domhnall Gleeson and Rachel McAdams. Maybe some of you have seen it. But if you know me well, you know that I am an absolute sucker for mind-bending time travel movies. And that's what this was. So I, I was hooked. And what if you could travel back in time to relive some of the critical moments of your life? Could you make your life better? Well, that's actually more than a reset, right? That's a total redo. And it would be nice if we could do that. Well, in the movie, Gleason's character, whose name was Tim Lake, he has this ability. And so the premise of the movie was, what if you could relive, relive any moment until it was perfect? That sounds so great, doesn't it? Of course, when, when they do this, there's all of these unintended consequences that happen when you go back and start messing with time, right? You change one thing, you don't know how that's going to play out, and things get twisted in a hurry. And actually, he starts to realize that th this is dangerous, what I'm doing. But because both Tim and his father had this ability, it created this, um, this ability for him to always go back into time travel mode and to always reconnect with his father. Even though his father had passed away in his current life, he had this ability to reconnect. So at the end of the movie, Tim realizes, I gotta, I gotta leave this, I gotta put this away, I gotta actually say no to this ability. But he knows that when he does that, he's going to sever forever his ability, his special ability to reconnect with his father. At that point in the movie, this sadness comes rolling into my mind. My eyes fill up with tears, and I just begin to softly start sobbing right there on the bed in the hotel room while I'm watching this movie. You see, my dad had passed away earlier that year. He was 94. And at that moment, the impact of his life and the fact that he was gone and I wasn't going to see him again, well, that emotion just overwhelmed my soul. See, there was an intersection point, and something in that movie triggered in my mind 
and also from some other place, deep in my emotions, this, this, this outpouring. Um, and I believe that in the middle of that, God was there as well. So that's my story. Uh, how about you? What's your story? Have you ever watched a movie that made you cry? Have you ever watched one where you didn't see it coming and all of a sudden, boom, something hit and it just, it brought you to that place? Maybe it wasn't a movie. Maybe it was something in nature. Maybe it was a sunset or a waterfall. Or maybe it was a piece of music that all of a sudden just brought you to that place of deep emotion. We are all emotional creatures. God knows this. God made us that way. And he wants to connect with us in that way as well. So the big idea for today is this. God speaks to us through our spirit and into our souls, and he speaks to both our mind and our emotions. It's kind of like this intersection that takes place where God shows up, and it's, it's both our mind and our emotions. And that's what our next section in the Bible is all about. Uh, we find ourselves in this literary section or, or books of poetry, as they're called. Well, what sets apart these, uh, these books from the rest? Well, it's less about relating historical narratives, and it's more about probing the mind and heart of God and how that interacts with the mind and heart of us. And so it does help to know what kind of literary style you're reading when you're reading through these books. And so we're going to go through them. There's only five of them. I thought I could do kind of a quick synopsis on each one, but I quickly realized that that's going to take too long. So I'm going to really go through this section fast, so buckle your seatbelts. Um, and if you're taking notes, I've provided um, some blanks in there. I will give you the blanks so you can fill in your notes. Uh, but we're going to go through this pretty quickly. So the first book is the book of Job. Probably many of you know that that has something to do with suffering. Uh, it's written in the style of both prose and poetry. Now, poetry doesn't mean that it rhymes necessarily, but it means that it's structured in this way of like there's verses and stanzas and verses and stanzas. Um, that's the poetic form of the book. <clears throat> but the theme of the book is God is my redeemer. And what does that mean? Well, it means that he takes what is broken and he restores it to full value. So Job starts out rich, he goes through, loses everything, loses his health, suffers greatly, but comes to a point of intersection with God, and in the end, God restores everything that he had, and Job learns a lesson along the way. The next book is the book of Psalms, and many of you are familiar with Psalms. It is the longest book in the whole Bible, at 150 chapters. And psalms are really just songs of praise and worship. If we're going to bring it into our present-day vernacular, we would say it's the worship team's playlist lyrics. That's what it is. Um, that's what it was for Israel. And um, the theme, there's many themes in psalms. It's lots of highs, lots of lows. Uh, but one theme for sure is God is my shepherd. 
And we are all probably familiar with the 23rd Psalm, which um, says that. Uh, from Psalms, a very emotional book, we move on to the Proverbs, which is more geared toward the mind. Uh, the style is, uh, it's like these thought couplets. So uh, Proverbs constantly is using contrast and comparison to make its point about basic life principles. Uh, you can learn a lot, a lot of basic wisdom reading through the Proverbs. And in fact, the theme is, God is my wisdom. From there, we move on to a, a book called Ecclesiastes. Uh, this is a tricky book to understand and interpret. We actually did a whole message on it last year, so I encourage you to go back and look through uh, to see that message. But it's actually an autobiography, somebody writing about their own life. And the key phrase over 20 times in that book is under the sun. This is a perspective that excludes God and excludes heaven and just looks at what's happening down here on the earth. And he says it's meaningless. All of this is just chasing after the wind. So the theme is that God is my hope beyond this life. That's the key. And finally, Song of Solomon. This book is basically a love song or a love poem. It's kind of like you got your hands on your neighbor's love notes that he wrote to his spouse or his girlfriend, and you're reading this intimate um, back and forth. Um, enough said about that. Um, <laughs> but you get the idea. And, and even though this, this love is between this, this man and the woman, the theme is that you know, God is actually my lover. So that's in there. Now... If we think back through these themes of these five books, and if we remember that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that's what it tells us in the New Testament, that we see who God is through Jesus, then we can deduce that Jesus is my Redeemer, Jesus is my Shepherd, He's my wisdom, He's my hope, and He is my lover. Now, not only does the Old Testament point <clears throat> to Jesus, but it makes very specific prophecies about him. And if we had time, we'd go on to the next section, which are the prophets, and we could see a lot of those prophecies. But did you know that Jesus is not only seen in those prophecies, but there's also prophecies in the Psalms uh, that talk about Jesus and what he would be like. So... Uh, in Luke chapter 24, this is after Jesus has died and rose again, he comes back and reappears to his disciples. And this is what he said. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So remarkably, there's this, this one psalm and there are at least six prophecies of Jesus' death by crucifixion. And mind you, David wrote this a full 1,000 years before crucifixion had even been invented by the Roman Empire. So in the time we have left, <clears throat> I want to uh, explore a little bit uh, this psalm. It's Psalm 22. 
actually just one psalm before the famous one. And it starts out in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you heard those words before? David goes on, why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Now, maybe you have felt what David was expressing here. Maybe you felt that God wasn't with you in that that moment where you just needed him the most. Maybe you lost a loved one, but unlike me and my dad, maybe you lost somebody who was in the prime of their life. It's a little harder to square up with our faith when something like that happens. Maybe it wasn't um, a lost loved one, but maybe it was a, a betrayal. Maybe somebody who was close to you, a friend or a family member or even a spouse, betrayed your trust. When we read the Psalms, we recognize that these are valid emotions to wrestle with. And to ask the question, why God, is not wrong. It's just, it's just human. It's just who we are. Now, interestingly, these very words at the, at, at the beginning of this psalm are the words that Jesus quoted when he hung on the cross. Why have you forsaken me, God? And he goes on, <clears throat> verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And we know that this happened to Jesus, that there were people who gathered at the foot of his cross while he was suffering, and they just mocked him. They just hurled insults at him. Verse 8 He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And this is actually what was said by the chief priests because they were the ones that put Jesus on trial. They were the ones that were shouting, crucify him. And they came to the foot of the cross too. And this is exactly what they were quoted as saying. And then in verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. We don't have to use much imagination to picture that this is a description of somebody that is hanging on a cross. And literally their bones are being pulled out of their joints. Verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Now, interestingly, David pictures this as his enemies, as a pack of wild dogs that have surrounded him, and they're, they're nipping at his hands and his feet, and so therefore his hands and feet get pierced. But he couldn't have possibly known that the Messiah would have had his hands and feet pierced from six-inch long spikes as they nailed him to those wooden beams that would form his cross, that would become his instrument of torture and death. And then finally, verse 17, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. 
Now, the fulfillment of this prophecy was particularly striking because there's actually two things that the soldiers did with Jesus' clothes. And we read it in John's account. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. But with the undergarment, it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, let's not tear it. Let's decide by lot who will get it. So this specific prophecy was fulfilled at the cross of Jesus exactly the way it was given to David a thousand years before it happened. Amazing. In 2004, a movie was released that overwhelmed audiences all over the world. It was called The Passion of the Christ. It told the story leading up to to Jesus' arrest and his mock trial and his crucifixion. But it depicted it in a most realistic and graphic way. It was a way that really no movie had captured it before. And at the end of that movie, I sat in a theater with probably about 100 people, and we watched all of the credits roll to the very end. Nobody got up. And then even after the credits were over, I think people still had a moment or two before they slowly began to get up out of their seats and silently walk out of the movie theater. That was the impact that that movie had on people at the time. Now, most of them knew the story or knew about the story, but they had never quite experienced it emotionally that way before. That portrayal put a spotlight on what Jesus accomplished, and it made it almost all too real. So there's a danger in us becoming too familiar with the Jesus story. And we're about to celebrate communion this morning. And it can become an emotional, rit- emotionless ritual if we're not careful. So just because God's grace is free to you and me, we must never fail to appreciate the terrible price that Jesus paid to secure our redemption. Now, while I was preparing for this message, I I came across this description of what it would have been like for Jesus as he hung on the cross. And I want to read a portion of it to you. Uh, It's by Jeremy Myers. It's it's a little bit medical scientific, but I think it's important for us to understand or try to understand what he went through. As Jesus slowly sags down with the weight of his body on the nails through his wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the most sensitive nerve endings in the body, called the median nerves, and travels along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act He can draw air into his lungs, 
but he cannot exhale. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself to exhale and bring in more life-giving oxygen. Doing so, however, comes at a price. To get a breath and relieve the pain in his arms and chest, he pushes himself upward, placing his full weight on the nail through his feet. The searing agony transfers from his wrists to his feet, tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. Nevertheless, he gets a breath and sags back down, only to repeat the process again and again. So this morning, our word of the day is passion. And in a moment, we're going to celebrate Jesus' passion, his sacrifice for us by taking communion together. And today we have a unique opportunity to reset our passion for Jesus, to recognize that he willingly set aside his relationship with the Father, that he was mocked and scorned, that he was beaten and tortured, that he faced down physical death and literally became sin for us so that you and I might be made righteous. This is what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians when he says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live to themselves, but for him who died for them. So let's today reset our passion. Let's let Jesus' love compel us to set aside our selfish life and to embrace his selfless one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you for his passion. We thank you that he went all the way to the cross and followed it through that he purchased our righteousness. Father, thank you that we can have that today, but help us never to forget or fail to appreciate and honor what he did for us on that cross. Father, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you that our sin can be washed away by his precious blood. In Jesus' name, amen.